Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give light to our eyes, that we would be able to see what you say in your word, and that we would love it and be changed by it. God, there's not power in ourselves to change ourselves, to give ourselves the life that we need to reconcile ourselves to you. So I pray that you would have mercy on us this morning, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that it would be alive to us in the power of the Spirit, that we would receive it in a humble attitude, and that you would do more than we ask or imagine in our lives. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I'm going to read you some verses from Psalm 32 to set this up. So this is Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. Listen to David's experience here. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Have you ever experienced that? I have to feel like you're rotting from the inside. That's what David's saying. David's saying God's hand was so heavy on me while I kept my sin a secret, it was like my bones were wasting away. God's hand was on him. Why would God do that? Why would God put his hand on you like David says he did, to make you so miserable, you cannot go on hiding your sin. Why? He will do it to you if he loves you. Here's, a, here's another question. Why do we hide our sin? Why? As a human being, this is instinctual. If you feel any sense of guilt, your first reaction is to hide. Hide from other people, hide from God, which is the craziest thing of all, right? Because God sees everything. You can't hide your sin from him. Have you ever, have you ever played hide and seek with a little kid? Little, little kids. Some of you guys, you've seen your brothers and sisters do this. They stand in the corner and they cover their eyes. And you can see them right there, but they think because they can't see you, you can't see them. That is exactly what it is like when we try to hide our sin from God. We think, you can't see. Please, God, you can't see. He's saying, I see you right there in the corner. You're standing right there. You're just covering your eyes. That's what we do when we hide our sin from God. When you sin, listen, what you need the most is for your sin to be forgiven and for your fellowship with the living God to be restored. That's what you need. Hiding won't get it done. Standing in the corner with your hands over your eyes won't get it done. 
You need forgiveness. You need restoration of fellowship. The most important thing about you is the condition of your relationship with God. And I know that's kind of preacher talk right there. Preachers are always saying the worst thing in the whole world or the best thing in the whole world or the greatest, the most important thing about you. This is not an overstatement. The most important thing about you is the condition of your relationship with God, your fellowship with him. Confession, when we sin, confession is the first step for that restoration to happen. Ezra chapter 9 is mostly an extended confession. Ezra is confessing the sins of the people. And so we're going to learn some lessons from his confession here for our own lives. Basically what's happening in this chapter, and we're going to look at it, is Ezra is going to confess a certain problem. We're going to see what that problem is real quickly. Then we're going to make a note about the fact that this is a corporate confession. Ezra's not just confessing his own personal sin. And then at the end, well, really with most of our time, we're going to learn four things, four lessons about how we should confess our own sin. So that's where we're going in Ezra chapter 9. So here's the problem, verses 1 and 2. Follow along with me if you can. After these things had been done, so Ezra showed up, he's delivered what the king gave to Jerusalem. So after that's been done, verse 1, the officials approached me and they said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So what's happening is that the children of Israel are giving their daughters to marry the peoples of the land, the non-Jewish people, and they're taking the non-Jewish people's daughters to be Wives for their husbands. Why is that a problem? Well, verse 10 is why it's a problem. Look at what verse 10 says. Now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you're entering to take possession of is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end, with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it. So the problem is that God told them not to do exactly what they're doing. When they stood on the edge of the land of Canaan after they'd been freed from Egypt, God said, don't do this, and they're doing it. Now, this is not mainly about racial purity. That's not mainly what this is about. And we saw that in chapter 6, verse 21. If you'll remember, when the people gathered for the Passover feast, it said any of the peoples of the land who separated themselves could join the people of God in worship. 
which means this is not about some sort of ethnic purity on the part of the Jews. It's mostly about worship. That's why it keeps mentioning the abominations of the people of the land. Deuteronomy 7.4 says this. This is when the people are standing on the edge of the land of Canaan. God says, don't give your daughters to them. Don't take their daughters for yourselves, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. This is not a hypothetical. This already happened to the people. The wisest of all of the Israelites was a man named Solomon. And do you know what happened to Solomon? He took many wives for himself among the peoples of the land, and it says his heart turned away. And just like Solomon, the people of the land followed. Their hearts turned to other gods. And so God sent Babylon to destroy them. This is not hypothetical for these exiles. They have seen what happens when their hearts turn to other gods. And so, some of the people are trembling. See verse 4. Verse 4 says, All who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. They're trembling. You see that? They're trembling at the words of God because of the faithlessness of the people. So they're trembling at what God has promised, which is, I'm going to destroy you if you're faithless. And they're looking around and saying, wait, we are the kind of people that God's word said will be destroyed. So they tremble. Some of them, some of them may have seen it happen the oldest of the people would have remembered what happened. They would have seen pregnant women torn open. That happened. Babies thrown from the tops of walls and streets filled with bodies. They trembled because they understood what this meant. They understood what it meant to be under the promise of God's wrath and to be a faithless people. And so unless something changes, the exact same thing is going to happen to them. They were just exiled a little over 70 years ago. And here they are, no better than those who came before them. They're trembling. Unless something changes, history is just going to repeat itself to us. And so... Ezra confesses. That's the first thing he does. This isn't, this isn't in my notes, but it's important to say the first thing you should do when you recognize that you're guilty is not to work to fix it. We feel that twinge of guilt and we think, oh, I got to get this handled right now. That's not the first thing you do. The first thing you do is you confess, I'm guilty. And that's what Ezra does. Now, here's a quick note about Ezra's confession. This is a corporate confession. Ezra's not confessing sins that he has personally done. Ezra himself has not intermarried with the peoples of the land and turned away from God. 
So that makes this a bit of a unique confession. Now, Ezra can confess for the people because he's in a covenant with them and God. He's in a covenant relationship with all of these people and God, and he's their leader and their priest. So we can still learn things from what Ezra's saying because he's not just confessing quietly. He's their leader, and he's confessing out loud. He's being a model for all the people around him about how they should feel about their sin. And that's why we can learn from him too. He is a model for us of how we should confess sin. So here are four lessons. We're going to do it the rest of our time. Talk about four lessons that we can learn about confession when we sin, when we are guilty and we want fellowship restored with God. When you confess, number one, paint the full picture. Paint the full picture picture. If there's a sin in your life and you're telling it to God, that's what confession is. Paint the whole picture. Don't just paint a corner of it. Make it clear what's been done. In a painting, there are clear lines. There's distinction of color. There's contrast. Give the full picture when you're confessing. Here's what Ezra does. He confesses specific sins and he's clear about the frequency and persistence of them. When I think about confessing my own sin, when I talk to anyone about confessing sin, I say, listen, be specific about the sin that you're confessing and, and be specific about how frequent this problem is. That's what Ezra does here. You can say, oh, I struggle with lying. But that's not very specific. I struggle with lying sometimes. Does that mean when you're at a party and you're telling a good story, you embellish sometimes? Or does that mean you lie to your boss about doing your work when you haven't done it? Or you're lying to your spouse about where you've been at night? Be specific. And be specific about the frequency, the persistence. Does this happen like once a month when you get carried away when you're telling a story? Or is this the kind of thing that's happening every day? It's important for you to give the full picture. That's what Ezra does here. Look at verse 14. In verse 14... He's clear about the specific sin. Shall we break your commandments again, God, and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? So he's clear about the kind of sin, but he's also clear about the persistence, the frequency of it. Look at verses 6 and 7. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is to this day. He's saying, listen, this has been a big deal, and it's been going on for a long time. Our fathers and their fathers did this, and we're doing it today. He's giving the clear picture. Listen, this isn't, this isn't just helpful for God. God knows all the ins and outs of your sin. So you're not, you're not helping God to gain understanding that he doesn't have about your sin. But this really will help you understand the seriousness of your sin. There are a lot of people who think, you know, let's, 
I'm impatient in traffic sometimes. What does that mean? Well, I cut somebody off about once every day. Okay, that's a problem. That, it helps you understand. Okay, for the last 15 years that I've been driving, I cut somebody off almost every day and give them this guy. That's different than I struggle with impatience when I'm driving. Being specific about the sin and the frequency and the persistence helps us grasp what, what it is that we're really confessing to the Lord. So paint the full picture when you confess. Two, use the Bible's categories for your sin. Use the Bible's categories for your sins when you confess. Notice when Ezra's confessing, he quotes Bible. You see that? Verses 10 and 12. Ezra says, now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we've forsaken your commandments. Which commandments? The commandments that you commanded by the servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you're entering to take possession of is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons. Neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity. He's quoting Bible as he's confessing to God what he's done. Make this a practice for yourself. This is not easy, by the way. Make it a practice. Try. Do the hard work of trying to con connect your guilt with what the Bible has to say. Do that work. Do the work of thinking, I know what I'm doing is wrong here. Now, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible define what I'm doing? If you stretch the truth, you stretch the truth, call it lying. If you're most motivated by what people think about you, don't call it peer pressure. Call it fear of man, like the Bible does or the love of the glory that comes from people rather than the glory that comes from God. Here's why. The words aren't that important. The categories are. Are you thinking in the Bible's categories? Because if you're thinking in the world's categories, like, oh, I, so much peer pressure. The world's answer to feeling peer pressure is getting better self-esteem. If you think in the Bible's categories for your sin, then the Bible can actually help you. The Bible is God's perspective on reality. The Bible's God's perspective on reality. Did you know that? When you're in sin, you want to know, what does God think about this? How does this relate to God? What does he have to say to help me? That's, that's why it's worth doing the work of trying to connect your sin with what the Bible has to say because you're getting God's perspective on it, and that's the way that you can get God's help. So when you confess your sin, as best as you're able, use the Bible's categories to do it. Three, when you confess your sin, justify God. Justify God. Justify means declare that God is in the right, that he is righteous. When we feel guilt, again, this is universal. 
when we feel guilt, our knee-jerk reaction is to try to minimize God's case against us. And so almost immediately when we feel guilt, we begin to imagine that he's not that good or that righteous or that just. He shouldn't take this that seriously. We begin to imagine he's not that great. So it's important to confess how righteous and good he is to him while you confess how unrighteous and wicked you are. This is what Ezra does. Look at verses 7 through 9. Ezra says, From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. For our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor's been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant. He's being kind to us, to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia. Then look at verse 15. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just righteous. You are righteous. For we are left a remnant that's escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Satan wants you to think when you're guilty that God is being unfair to you. He'd love that. He'd love that. If he can't get you to ignore the fact that you're guilty because you have a conscience, he can at least begin to make you think that God's going to be unfair to you. He's not that good. He's not that just. He'd love that. So tell yourself how righteous and good he is while you confess your own sin. Now, when you're, when you're in broken fellowship with people, this is different most of the time. Lots of the time. I don't know if it's all the time, but lots of the time, when you're in broken fellowship with someone, you have something to confess and a lot of times they do too. It's not always that way, but that's how it is with other people. A lot of times, yeah, okay, I did wrong, they did wrong, we're both confessing. God has no sin to confess. It's really good to say that. It's really good to say that to your own soul and to him. Sometimes we say, this is, I guess this is a tangent right now, but sometimes we say, if you're angry with God, that's okay, just tell him. No, no. Tell him, yes, but it's not okay because he's never wrong. You should tell him, God, I'm angry and I shouldn't be because you're never, ever wrong. You're righteous. You're good. When a boat drifts from the shore, the shore doesn't move. It's the boats that are drifting. If you're a sailor, and you think that the land is moving around, you're never going to be able to find your way home. It's good to know that the shore never moves. God never moves in our sin. He remains the same. We're the boats that drift. Ezra's saying that. Others are overhearing Ezra say that. 
And it's good for us to say that, God, I'm guilty, and I need to confess. My soul needs to confess because Satan's trying to tell me otherwise. The lawyer inside of me is trying to tell me otherwise. You are righteous. You are good. Number four, when we confess, despise any attempt to justify your sin. Despise it. Despise hate. Any attempt to justify your sin. Our first reaction, we said this at the beginning, whenever we feel guilt, is to hide. That's what Adam and Eve did. They eat the fruit of the tree and they run. They hide. That's what we do. We hide from other people. Oh, I don't want anyone else to know about this. We hide it from our own consciousness. That's amazing, isn't it, that people can do that? There are, you know people, you, you may be a person like this or you know someone like this who when you want to talk about something that happened, I don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. You can do that in your own mind. There are places you don't want to go. We want to hide because we want to hide from God. When we're guilty, we either want to discredit God, that was the last point, or we want to give ourselves more credit than we deserve. In both cases, we're trying to minimize God's case against us. Perhaps the most striking thing about this chapter, Ezra 9, is Ezra's complete desolation and devastation. He doesn't try to get himself or the people off the hook. He doesn't try to minimize their sin at all, not in the least. He tears his clothes, verse 3. He pulls out hair on his head and in his beard, and he fasts. He stops eating. Verse 5 says that. He's not minimizing his sin, their sin. In verse 6, he says this. I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. That's not minimizing what the people have done. He's saying we're drowning in our sin. Look at verse 13. I love this. Verse 13, Ezra says, and after all that's come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt. Now, he's talking about the streets of Jerusalem being filled with bodies. Horror that most of us have never imagined. Not in the most grisly movies that we've seen. After all that has happened to us, verse 13, for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. That's amazing. I love that. Do any of you know entitled people? Entitled? That means they think they deserve things from everybody. They deserve good from everyone. They deserve the best there is. And when things don't go their way, they pout. They're entitled. They have a right to the best. Entitled people don't pray like this. They don't pray like this. They can't pray this prayer. They think God owes them. Why, why would you try to do anything bad to me, God? Why would you discipline me? I'm awesome. Entitled people don't pray prayers like this. 
listen, he always treats us better than we deserve. <laughs> always. He always treats us better than we deserve. When we tell our sins to God and we're confessing, the point of our confession is not to make our sin small, okay? When you're telling God your sin, you're not coming as a lawyer, as an attorney, to defend yourself. You're not coming to make it small. Hate any desire in yourself, and it'll come. It almost always comes. Despise it. Despise any desire to defend yourself. The reason we confess is to tell God and claim full responsibility. I really, I really am jealous that we would be a church, that we would be Christians like this, who aren't making excuses for our sins, but who are confessing them and claiming full responsibility. Verse 15, Ezra says, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that's escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. So Ezra's clearly saying, we have no legs to stand on before you, God. You would be completely just to wipe us out. I hope you pray like that when you confess your sins. I hope you pray like that. God, we don't have any case to defend ourselves for what we've done. Anything that comes our way, God, we deserve it and more because you've treated us better than our sins deserved. Hate any desire to justify your sin. One of the ways we do this is we blame someone else for our sin. Well, the reason I did it was because they were doing this to me first. I hit her because she was so annoying. That's not taking responsibility for what you've done. Or we blame our circumstances. Well, the reason I'm angry is because it's so hot outside. No. No. Jesus was the perfect man. And circumstances, terrible circumstances, and terrible treatment by others never made him sin. Here's what will happen. If you justify yourself... If you come to God and you minimize your sin, you either hide from it, you ignore that it's there, or you confess a little bit of it, but you're trying to make it small so that God doesn't do anything bad to you. If that's the way you approach God, God will give you what you deserve. And you don't want what you deserve. But if instead... You confess to God like we've talked about. You give the full picture. You say, God, you're righteous. I have no legs to stand on here. I deserve whatever terrible thing could come my way for what I've done. You know what you'll receive? Mercy. Mercy. We don't confess to explain away our sin, but for mercy. Who knows 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, amen. That's right. If we confess our sins, what will God do? 
He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I hope you take that, that verse, if nothing else, you put that in your back pocket and when you feel guilt, you pull it out and you take it to the bank. If we confess, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have fellowship one with another. Amen. Who here is hiding sin? Who's hiding sin? <laughs> you don't have to put up your hands. It'd be a good step <laughs> if you did. That's not the way it gets taken away. That's not the way your guilt is taken away. If you want it taken away, and you will find mercy. Here's why. This is undiluted, 200 proof good news. Jesus Christ died for your sins. You ask, oh, wait, the verse said, if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. Ezra just said God is just to destroy them. How is God just to forgive our sins? Because Jesus Christ died for them. The totally righteous one, Jesus Christ, died like a dog for you. The infinitely worthy Jesus Christ was nailed up like a piece of meat for you. So that if anyone in here confesses their sins, they will find mercy from God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My plea to you, I'm, I am pleading with you. I don't know where you are spiritually. Confess and run to Jesus. Hiding is not how it's taken away. On the cross is how it's taken away. And when we confess, we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So come to him. Believers, believers who have been forgiven in Jesus, if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to be cleansed from unrighteousness? I do. I do. There are things in my heart that keep popping up and I say, God, you know how wicked I am. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness and he will be faithful and just to do it. So confess and run to him. Here's one final word. This is not from Ezra. It's just a last note on confession. If you find yourself in habitual sin, patterns of sin, it's good to confess to another person. It's really good to confess to another person, to do this kind of thing, to give the full picture, to confess to someone you trust. It really helps us understand the depth of our problem, and God has given you the other people in this room to help you. That's one of the ways he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So confess to others. We have a faithful and just God in Jesus Christ to forgive us. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the gospel. If Jesus, if you had not died, then we should hide as best we can. We know no one can hide from you, but that's the best option. But you died for us. So that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to believe that. Help us to believe it when we sin and to run to you first in confession.